Paul Aaron is Director of Publications for the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. Uh, previously, he was an award-winning reporter for the Virginia Gazette, Executive Director at Simon & Schuster, and Associate Editor at Doubleday. Paul is the author of nine books, including We Hold These Truths and Other Words That Made of America, Why the Turkey Didn't Fly, The Surprising Stories Behind the Eagle, the Flag, Uncle Sam, and Other Images of America, and of course, the subject of today's lecture, Founding Feuds, the Rivalries, Clashes, and Conflicts that Forged Nation. We are thrilled to have you all with us again and very thrilled to have Paul with us. Please welcome Paul Aaron. Thank you. And thank you also to the sponsors, the Historical Society and the Society of Colonial Wars and the Times-Dispatch. In 1818, John Adams, looking back to 1776, wrote of 13 clocks that were made to strike together. These clocks were, of course, he was referring to the 13 colonies united for in the cause of independence. Today, in a nation that is anything but united, we tend to look back longingly on an era when we were united. What I hope to talk about today, what I hope to show today, is that to some very considerable extent, that era never existed. <laughs> what unity there was, was fleeting. The founders were just as apt to disagree as, and their disagreements were just as heated as any of our disagreements are today. Sometimes their feuds were personal and petty. Sometimes they were driven by real ideological differences. And it's no wonder they feuded. They believed that what was at stake then was the nature, indeed, the very survival of the nation. Their insults of each other were just as scathing as anything you would hear today. To give you a few, this is John Adams speaking of the Virginian Arthur Lee. His countenance is disgusting. His air is not pleasing. His manners are not engaging. His temper is harsh, sour, and fiery. Here is Abigail Adams on Alexander Hamilton. I have read his heart in his wicked eyes many a time. The very devil is in them. Here is Thomas Jefferson on Hamilton, describing Hamilton as a man whose history, from the moment at which history can stoop to notice him, is a tissue of machinations against the liberty of the country which has not only received and given him bread, but heaped its honors on his head. And here is Hamilton describing Adams as someone, a man with a vanity without bounds and a jealousy capable of discoloring every object. Mercy Otis Warren, who was one of the first women, well, not just one of the first women historians, one of the first historians of the revolution, um, wrote, when, wrote, to James, wrote to John Adams and called his letters to her the ravings of a lunatic. And Adams, Adams responded to Elbridge Gerry writing about War Mercy Otis Warren. His answer was very 
Short and to the point, it was, history is not the province of ladies. <laughs> and now, now, George Washington generally tried to stay above the fray and was generally successful at staying above the fray. Nobody was allowed, at least publicly, to criticize Washington, but not Thomas Paine. Here is Thomas Paine writing to George Washington. And as to you, sir, treacherous in private friendship, for so you have been to me, and a hypocrite in public life, the world will be puzzled to decide whether you are an apostate or an imposter, <laughs> whether you have abandoned good principles or whether you have e ever had any. <laughs> and one more, here is Jefferson on Patrick Henry. Writing, this is Jefferson writing to James Madison about Patrick Henry. What we have to do, I think, Jefferson said to Madison, what we have to do, I think, is devoutly to pray for his death. <laughs> I, the founders were so eloquent <laughs> that even their insults are worth listening to. Um, but what I, what I hope to show today is something more than that. I hope to suggest, perhaps, that the divisions today that we face are not a cause for despair. I mean, democracy, after all, depends on disagreements. If we all agreed on everything, it wouldn't be a democracy. And perhaps, too, the founders showed us some ways we might get beyond our own division. We, we might get beyond our own divisions. After all, the founders created a nation. And I would argue they did this not only in spite of their feuds, but perhaps because of their feuds. Now I'm going to show you my, I'm, go, I'm going to reveal my incompetence with this and see if I can actually change the slide. Ah, success. As that may be my greatest achievement. <laughs> um, let me start with the feud between um, Patrick Henry and James Madison. Um, I do this partly because as a Colonial Williamsburg employee, I, I, I really ought to show people who you can see interpreted not so far down 64 from here <laughs> at Williamsburg. Henry was, of course, the revolution's greatest orator. It was in Williamsburg that he said, if this be treason, make the most of it. And it was in Richmond that he said, give me liberty or give me death. Madison was the father of the Constitution. And when they faced off, it was with the fate of that document, the Constitution, at stake. This was at the 1788 ratifying convention for the Constitution in Richmond. At, the, at this point, nine, nine states were needed to, for the Constitution to become the law. Eight had ratified it when Virginia's convention met. So this was the last stand for the Anti-Federalists, those who were against the Constitution. And Henry was the leading Anti-Federalist. Madison was the leading Federalist. Uh, the historian Joseph Ellis called this the most consequential debate in American history, more so even than the Lincoln-Douglas debate over slavery. 
Henry and Madison had faced off before over the relationship between church and state. Henry wanted people to pay taxes to support the church of their choice. Jefferson and Madison wanted a greater separation. Um, Jefferson, who was always a wonderful writer, but who was jealous of Henry's speaking skills, uh, said of Henry, he is all tongue without either head or heart. <laughs> but back, back to the ratification fight. Henry, at first the Federalists had hoped that Henry would join them. And they invited Henry to go to Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention. But Henry said, I smelt a rat. And at that ratifying convention, he attacked that rat with a vengeance. He was loud, and he was eloquent, and he was, he was long. Uh, over, over three and a half weeks of debate at that convention, nearly one quarter of the time was Henry speaking. Henry challenged the basic premises, premise of the Constitution. He said, why should it be we the people? Shouldn't it be we the states? He feared, as do many today, the power of, a, of the federal government. Madison, in contrast, was very quiet. At one point, the stenographer complained he couldn't hear anything Madison was saying. But Madison was systematic. He argued that the checks and balances in the Constitution would limit the federal government and would limit any abuses by any branch of that government. Henry's final speech at the convention, it was a classic Henry extravaganza. This is Henry. He, he's referring to Madison now, he tells you of important blessings which he imagines will result to us and mankind in general from the adoption of this system. I see the awful immensity of the dangers with which it is pregnant. I see it. I feel it. I see beings of a higher order anxious concerning our decision. When I see beyond the horizon that binds human eyes and look at the final consummation of all human things and see those intelligent beings which inhabit the ethereal mansions, reviewing the political decisions and revolutions which the progress of time will happen in America and the consequent happiness or misery of mankind, I am led to believe that much of the account on one side or the other will depend on what we now decide. At this point, thunder interrupted Henry. <laughs> One delegate, one delegate to the convention described how Henry was rising on the wings of the tempest to seize upon the artillery of heaven and direct its fiercest thunders against the heads of his adversaries. <laughs> the artillery of heaven was not enough. The convention did ratify the Constitution. But Henry got some measure of revenge. He did manage to deny Madison a Senate seat, and he almost denied him a House seat by supporting James Monroe in that election. Uh, this is just a point of trivia. That election, that congressional election between Madison and Monroe was the first and last time that two future presidents would run against each other for a seat in Congress. There is, though, a, an ironic twist to the Henry Madison feud, maybe even a hopeful twist to the feud. Henry did end up reconciling himself to the new Constitution. Partly this was because he, like many other anti-Federalists, 
were pleased by the Bill of Rights, which guaranteed freedom of religion, of speech, of press, of assembly. And Madison, meanwhile, ended up embracing Henry's arguments. He founded, with Jefferson, the Republican Party. And the basis of the Republican Party then was objection to the power of the federal government. So perhaps one can draw from this that positions that once seemed completely irreconcilable aren't always. Um, now, I am going to turn to, perhaps turn to, if I succeed, um, well, Colonial Williamsburg doesn't actually have a Hamilton. We, we pretend, of course, that um, everything of significance happened in Virginia and complete, but, but every now and then there are people like Hamilton who it's hard to, while retaining historical accuracy, place them entirely in Virginia. Um, so this, this is the, the Hamilton-Jefferson feud is a classic feud. And I think the best way to describe it is by describing a dinner party. This was a party hosted by Jefferson. Um, at the time, Jefferson was Secretary of State. Hamilton was Treasury Secretary. It was at Jefferson's home. And Hamilton asked about the portraits on the wall. And Jefferson responded that they were Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, and John Locke. And Jefferson added, these were the greatest men the world has ever produced. Hamilton responded, and again, this is according to Jefferson, so keep that in mind. Hamilton responded, the greatest man ever was Julius Caesar. The moral for Jefferson was that Hamilton was a would-be Caesar, um, that he would replace the republic with a tyranny given a chance. Now, Hamilton's attitude toward Jefferson was not complimentary either. He thought he was a hypocrite, someone who talked about liber liberty while owning slaves. He thought he was a naive philosopher, someone who was seduced by the radical ideas that would, could come out of the French Revolution and that that would lead to tyranny. And he thought Jefferson was a coward. He noted many times that when the British approached Monticello, Jefferson fled. And that was unfair. Jefferson's flight was prudent. But I mean, it wasn't heroic. <laughs> what, what they really disagreed about, the heart of their feud, were their different economic visions for America. Hamilton believed in a nation that would be based on an economy that would be based on manufacturing and on trade and would be centered in the northern cities. Jefferson envisioned an agrarian republic as he envisioned it, as he had in Virginia. Hamilton believed in a strong federal government. He believed in higher taxes. He wanted a central bank. Jefferson saw all of those as steps on the road to tyranny. They could compromise sometimes. In 1790, and this was at another dinner party, they reached a great compromise where Hamilton got what he wanted. He got increased federal taxes. And at that same dinner party, Jefferson got something out of it too, and Madison. 
They got the capital, not in Philadelphia, not in New York, but near Washington's home in Mount Vernon, and of course, what would become Washington, D.C. But mostly, they were at odds. Jefferson described he and himself and Hamilton as daily pitted in the cabinet like two cocks. Washington tried to mediate, but mostly he failed, and mostly he sided with Hamilton, and in 1793, Jefferson gave up trying to work it out. He resigned, and he became leader of America's first opposition party. So the feud between Hamilton and Jefferson, who won it? Well, in one sense, it was certainly Jefferson. It was Jefferson who was elected president. It was Jefferson who did make America more democratic, not for everyone, certainly not for African-Americans or for women, but, but his words that all men are created equal certainly inspired future generations of America. And it is Jefferson who, of course, has the monument on the mall. <laughs> Hamilton, well, Hamilton has a musical. <laughs> but Hamilton, our America is also very much Hamilton's America, the urban, industrial, expansive, powerful America. That's Hamilton's vision of America. That's not Jefferson's vision of America. In some sense, I would argue, they both won. The 1800 election, which Jefferson won, was a peaceful transfer of power from the Federalists to the Republicans. Contrary to the Federalist fears, fears of those like Hamilton, Jefferson did not turn the American Revolution into the French Revolution. He did not dismantle the federal government. Indeed, he reached out to the Federalists. His inaugural address was clearly conciliatory. Every difference of opinion, Jefferson wrote, Jefferson said, every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. We are all Republicans, we are all Federalists. And that too is perhaps a hopeful note for today. It would be nice to hear someone say, we are all Republicans, we are all Democrats. Next, it was, <laughs> maybe next, no? Um, Jefferson and Adams. Well, that's not actually it. That's actually Henry um, and Jefferson. Oh, okay, back to that. I, see, I warned you. Um, it was, in the election of 1800, of course, it was not between, it was not an election between Hamilton and Jefferson. It was an election between Adams and Jefferson. Now, Adams and Jefferson were not always feuding. In fact, back in 1776, they were great allies in the fight for independence. Adams was so, so, so strongly fought in Congress for independence that he admitted, this is his word, that he was obnoxious. Um, and Jefferson, of course, was nobody could be more eloquent in describing in, in, in making the case for independence. Together, they did more for the revolution than, than any, well, I mean, I guess you could make a case for Washington or, or for Franklin. But certainly, besides Washington Franklin, no one did more for the revolution than Adams and Jefferson. And they were also, 
They were not just political allies, they were great personal friends. Jeff, the widow Jefferson spent a great deal of time in the home of John and Abigail Adams. Um, Jefferson wrote to Madison that Madison, when he met Adams, he would find him irritating. But he added, you will love him if you know him. What, what, what tore them apart was, again, the politics of the Washington administration. Adams wanted a strong executive, a strong president. Jefferson thought that was too much like a king. Un understandable, given that Americans had just fought a revolution against a king. Um, this came to a head in a silly fight over what the title of the president should be. Adams wanted Washington to be known as His Highness. <laughs> Jefferson said that was the most superlatively ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. And then Jefferson quoted Franklin about Adams, saying he is always an honest man, often a great one, but sometimes absolutely mad. <laughs> Things got worse during the election of 1796 and during the Adams administration. Um, Adams defeated Jefferson in the election of 1796 and then found himself involved in what was known as a quasi-war with France. This was a series of naval engagements. Um, the Federalists pointed to the excesses of the French Revolution. They wanted war with France. Um, and Adams approved of building an army to fight France. The Republicans were much more sympathetic to the French. They saw the French Revolution as in some way a continuation of the American Revolution. They saw the Federalists as undemocratic. Um, they passed the Sedition Act in 1798, the purpose of which was to prosecute newspaper editors who criticized the government. And Jefferson warned that this was the first step toward creating a president for life. Things got even worse between the two in the election of 1800. This was a rematch where the rhetoric was raised. Adams was in the mind of, in the words of the Republicans, he was a warmonger, he was a tyrant. Jefferson, in the words of the Federalists, was an anarchist and an atheist. Overall, the Republicans had gained ground. The Federalists were increasingly seen as wealthy aristocrats, and Jefferson won. Um, and Jefferson referred to the election of 1800 as the revolution of 1800. He believed it was every bit as much every bit as important a victory for democracy as that in 1776. Adams' attitude toward the election results could be judged by the fact that on the morning of Jefferson's inauguration, he boarded the 4 a.m. stage from Washington, and he never returned. I should, I, I should mention that Though both, at this point I should mention that it does not work with the founders to assume that the enemy of one enemy is one's friend. Adams and Hamilton detested each other just as much as either detested Jefferson. Adams was puritanical. He disapproved of Hamilton's affair with married, in, in, in Ham, Hamilton was Adams disapproved of Hamilton's affair with married women. There was always a puritanical streak in Adams. Um, Hamilton um, 
Hamilton tried to get his, take his revenge during the election of 1800, writing a 54-page pamphlet in which he described Adam's disgusting egotism, his distempered jealousy. Ron Chernow, the biography of Hamilton, in a, generally, in, in, in a biography that is generally very kind to Hamilton, described Hamilton's pamphlet as an extended tantrum in print. Um, Adams called Hamilton a, a bastard brat of a Scott peddler who had fixed his eyes on the highest station in America and hated every man who stood in his way. But I digress. I was, talking, I was supposed to be talking about the Adams-Jefferson feud. Not, so let me turn back to the Adams-Jefferson feud, because it, there's a happy turn to this feud. In 1812, Adams sent a New Year's greeting to Jefferson, and Jefferson responded warmly. And that unleashed a flood of letters, 158 letters, between 1812 and the deaths on July 4th, 1826. And that, that's a story that's been told many times, but it's just you can't resist <laughs> saying it again. It's just so amazing that both of them, both Adams and Jefferson, died on July 4th, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Adams wrote to Jefferson, you and I ought not to die before we have explained each other before we have explained ourselves to each other. Boy, did they explain. To each other and to us. They talked about philosophy. They talked about politics as if their differences had never been personal. Jefferson said to Adams, we do not think exactly alike. It matters little to our country, which we have delivered to our successors. Right? He's right that they didn't think alike, but I think he's wrong. It does it, that it doesn't matter to us. Their, 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 their feud and their friendship is a testament to their ability to forge a nation out of both. I want to turn to a couple of more obscure figures. Um, and I don't have colonial Williamsburg people who play these. Um, William Cobbett and Thomas Paine. Paine's not that obscure. Payne arrived from England with little more than a letter in his pocket from Benjamin Franklin. But very quickly, he had written both Common Sense and then the American Crisis Essays, which are credited with inspiring Americans, this is in Payne's words, to begin the world over again. Unfortunately for Payne, that new world he envisioned was too radical for most Americans. He supported the French Revolution. He attacked organized religion. He even attacked, as I mentioned earlier, George Washington, calling him a traitor and a hypocrite. Adams described Paine as begotten by a wild boar on a bitch wolf. <laughs> he also said, never before in any age of the world had there been such a career of mischief. Now, you would think, as insults go, that would be hard to top. But here is William Cobbett writing in an antidote to Tom Paine's theological and religious poison. Cobbett wrote, how Tom gets a living now, or what brothel he inhabits, I know not. Whether his carcass is at last to be suffered to rot on the earth or to be dried in the air is of very little consequence. Like Judas, he will be remembered by posterity Men will learn to express all that is base, malignant, treacherous, unnatural, and blasphemous by the single monosyllable, pain. <laughs> In a way, 
Cobbett was a very unlikely adversary for Paine. Both, like Paine, Cobbett came from, he was, he was a working class immigrant from England. And like Paine, he was appalled by social injustice. But while Paine concluded what was necessary was more democracy, Cobbett concluded democracy had gone too far. Cobbett became the editor of a leading Federalist paper known as Porcupine's Gazette, though Paine re preferred to call Cobbett skunk. <laughs> they both, this, they, they were both part of what, some of the nastiest feuds of the time were played out in the press. Um, they were both part of this. Uh, Cobbett and Paine were both popular writers. They were both aggressive writers. And this was a time when there was no pretense of objectivity. Uh, newspapers were openly partisan. I mean, fake news was not invented in 2016. <laughs> the Federalists tried to shut down the Republican press through the Sedition Act, as I mentioned, but they failed. The Republicans won the press war, and they won the election of 1800. But Paine was not among the winners. He was, as I mentioned, too radical for most Americans. He ended up going to France, and he was not radical enough there. When he suggested, when he suggested it was not a good idea to execute the king, he ended up being jailed in Paris. This actually led to his attack on Washington, because Paine was bitter that Washington didn't do enough to free him from jail in France. Um, but again, I digress. I'm not supposed to, that's a different feud. Um, <laughs> in the end, Paine's attack on Washington damaged Paine a lot more than it did Washington. Even Jefferson distanced himself from Paine. When Paine died in 1809, there were six mourners at his funeral. But again, to return to the Paine-Cobbett feud, there is again a happy turn and a really weird turn in this feud. Cobbett ended up returning to England he was disillusioned by the corruption and the inequality he saw there. He was jailed for sedition there. And then he decided, well, Paine was right about everything. In 1815, Cobbett wrote, Paine observed very truly that a rich government made a poor people. And Paine committed himself to publishing all of Paine's works and writing a biography of Paine, which he never finished. But so it was that early one morning, before dawn, in 1819, Cobbett stumbled through the dark in New Rochelle, which was a suburb of New York where Paine was buried. And he dug up Paine's corpse. He then sailed to England with the bones. At the customs inspection in Liverpool, he announced, there, gentlemen, are the mortal remains of the immortal Thomas Paine. His son, J.P., inherited the bones in 1835, but no one knows to this day where they are. And finally, can I do one more? Yeah. It, it's, <laughs> I can't, you can't talk about feuds and not talk about Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. In a way, given how vitriolic these feuds were. It's amazing that more bled, blood wasn't shed. And there, there was bloodshed. I mean, even, even in the halls of Congress. In 1798, Roger Griswold, 
a Federalist from Connecticut, took his cane and bloodied Matthew Lyons, a Republican from Vermont. But the most famous bloody feud was, of course, that between the former Treasury Secretary, Hamilton, and when he dueled the Vice President of the United States, Aaron Burr. This was on July 11, 1804. Hamilton died the next day. One of the ironies of this feud is that twice before then, Burr saved Hamilton's life. In 1776, Hamilton, they were both soldiers in the Continental Army. In 1776, Hamilton was trapped behind British lines in Manhattan. Burr, a New Yorker, knew his way around well, and, and he led Hamilton to safety. In 1797, Burr headed off a duel between Hamilton and Monroe. I mentioned earlier Hamilton had had an affair with a married woman. Hamilton suspected Monroe had leaked documents about the affair and a scandal tied to it. And Burr calmed the warders so that the two did not feud. They also worked together. They were both, they were both lawyers. They jointly represented a man charged with murdering his fiancée in New York. And the jury found him not guilty. The, you cannot talk about the feud without tracing it back to the 1800 election. Jefferson had selected Burr as his running mate. He was hoping Burr would deliver the New York electoral vote. Jefferson, as a Virginian, was worried he wasn't going to get New York. And Burr did deliver. Um, but at the time, the Constitution didn't distinguish between an electoral vote for a president and a vice president. So Jefferson and Burr both ended up tied with 73 electoral votes. That sent the decision to the House of Representatives, which was still controlled by Federalists. And some Federalists began to wonder whether they might not be better off with Burr instead of Jefferson. After all, Burr, he had less ties than Jefferson to the Republican ideology. He was more open to compromise. He was from New York, not Virginia. He was ambitious for himself more than for his party. Hamilton, who was, of course, still a he was, he was a leading Federalist still, even though he was no longer the Treasury Secretary. Hamilton said that Jefferson's principles were dangerous, but Burr had no principles at all. <laughs> on Jefferson, this is Hamilton on Jefferson, he has pretensions to character. On Burr, this is Hamilton on Burr, he is bankrupt beyond redemption except by the plunder of his country. His public principles have no other spring than his own aggrandizement. He is one of the most unprincipled men in the United States. How close Burr came to the presidency, how much Hamilton's opposition mattered, Hamilton's opposition to Burr mattered, historians still debate this. But one thing they don't debate, one thing is clear, and that is that Burr knew what Hamilton was up to, and Burr was not going to forget it. And then, in 1804, Hamilton did it to Burr again. This time, Burr was running for governor of New York. Jefferson was, clearly did not want him as his vice president anymore, so he's back to New York running for governor. Hamilton believed that Burr saw the governorship merely as a stepping stone to, a president of, to become president of some sort of independent northern confederacy. So Hamilton again worked against Burr, and again, Burr lost. The most immediate cause of the feud was a letter in a newspaper from a Charles Cooper, who was quoted talking about Hamilton's despicable opinion of Burr. 
historians are not sure what it was exactly that Cooper said that was the dis so despicable. Some have suggested that Hamilton may have said that Burr was sleeping with Burr's own daughter. Uh, in any case, Hamilton offered no explanation. He offered no denial. And he couldn't, because he did believe Burr was despicable. <laughs> so who won this feud? Well, I mean, of course, it wasn't Hamilton. He was dead. Um, but, but Burr, Burr was hardly a winner either. Um, dueling was already seen by many as an aristocratic anachronism. Burr was indicted for murder. He fled west, where gunfighting was more acceptable. Um, and, but in general, in the war of memory, Jefferson won. Burr is remembered as Hamilton thought of him, as Jefferson thought of him, as an unprincipled opportunist. Uh, he was later involved in various adventures that led to a treason charge. Uh, he wasn't found guilty. Um, but I think we might want to, at this point, give perhaps a little bit of appreciation to Aaron Burr. He was an opportunist, no question about it. But he did try to appeal to both Federalists and to Republicans, even if it was only for his own ambitions. And perhaps there's some lesson in that for our own ideological divides today. In, in Burr's last days, according to his, a 19th century biography, he was reading the novel Tristram Shandy. And this is a novel in which a character is tormented by a fly. He catches it, and then he lets it go, saying, this world is wide enough, this world surely is wide enough to hold both thee and me. And then Burr said, I should have known that the world was wide enough for Hamilton and me. Thanks. Happy to, happy to take questions. Very engaging. Thank you. Uh, you were just telling us about uh, uh, Hamilton and Burr uh, working together and then pulling apart. Could you tell us a little bit about Madison and Hamilton, who worked together on the Federalist Papers and then pulled apart? And to what extent, if any, it was personal? Well, Madison and Hamilton worked together. The Federalist Papers were, of course, crucial for the passing of the Constitution. And they still remain, I think many would agree, uh, most of one, one of the most important, brilliant works of political philosophy ever written. Now, they didn't work together in the sense of working on the papers together. Madison wrote some, Hamilton wrote some, John Jay wrote a few. Um, but certainly they were allies. Certainly what tore them apart was the same thing that I mean, Madison, in general, was a protege of Jefferson. So I think the, perhaps not the full answer, but the quickest answer to your question is, in, most er in this as in most areas, Madison followed Jefferson. And when Jefferson broke with Hamilton, Madison broke as well. I don't sense the same level of personal animosity, but certainly politically, Madison was very much 
a Republican. He and Jefferson founded the party together, and it was a party very much opposed to what Hamilton was advocating. Can you give me a sense of what it was like to campaign then? How did people get information so well, they, they knew for whom to vote? the way we do today. I mean, it was generally thought unbecoming to openly campaign. So the, most of what, most of the campaigning was done by surrogates in the press. That is, others would write on their behalf. The type of quotes I was giving of their insults of each other didn't tend to be on the campaign trail. They would tend to be things they would write in letters, but the campaigning was really done, as I mentioned, the press wars were vicious at the time, and the press was, you know, I mean, MSNBC and Fox seemed, seemed completely allied compared to, uh, for example, the, you know, the Aurora, which was the Republican newspaper at the time, the Gazette, which was the, uh, but there were many Federalist and many Republican newspapers. Most of the campaigning was through surrogates in the newspaper, not on the campaign trail. I didn't, I shouldn't have given an impression, if I did, I apologize, that these were quotes from, when I read their insults, that they were from a campaign trail. How would you compare the feuds you just discussed with Jackson and Calhoun? <laughs> um, feuds were, we've had feuds throughout our history. I mean, I mean, you know, the Jackson, well, I mean, he, Jackson Calhoun, Jackson, uh, Jackson Adams, were, John, John Quincy Adams and Jackson were a horrible feud. Jackson Calhoun, Calhoun was, was certain, you know, I mean, it was, I'm trying to remember which election it was. I think it was in the John Quincy Adams election that um, they accused Jackson's wife of being a bigamist, um, was it, was, um, which was technically true, but, <laughs> but, but only technically true. I mean, that he, he wasn't, neither of them was aware that, that they hadn't been, that Jackson's wife hadn't been divorced. So, uh, I mean, it's hard to compare, I, I think, um, no feuds, I, 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 perhaps this is just my bias in favor of the founders and working for Colonial Williamsburg, but I don't think there are any feuds in our history where the, those feuding were more eloquent than the founders. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that there weren't plenty of other feuds that were equally scathing. I, uh, I don't have a question, but just an observation. <clears throat> you noted that only six people attended Payne's funeral. I would offer that that's a problem only if you have eight handles on your coffin. <laughs> I can't argue that. Thank you.